You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom and Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom. I am so glad you could join me once again. We pick through the rubble of the collision of technology, entertainment, and media to find a few golden nuggets that we can share with you guys. In the last couple of weeks, I've been really crazy busy. I'm so glad that it's quieted down a little bit here in mid-July. Now that we've gotten past VidCon, Comic-Con, the uh, Influencer Marketing con- uh, Conference and Expo, and the OTTX conference, all of which I attended and moderated panels at, five of them at Comic-Con. Left me a little strung out, I have to admit. It's taken me a little time to uh, come back to normalcy or what passes for that in my own life. But there was a lot of good stuff there. Among the people I talked with on those panels was one Adam Lewinson, who is the chief content officer for Tubi TV. Tubi's really interesting. It's an ad-supported video-on-demand channel. They claim to be the biggest of all of the AVOD, AVOD channels out there. They actually provide lots and lots of content, 15,000 pieces of it, 44,000 hours of it to 20 million monthly active users. I will include at the end of this my conversation on stage at um, the OTTX conference, which was held in Hollywood about two weeks ago now with Adam, so you can get an idea where he's coming from. But in the meantime, I wanted to talk a little bit about how Tubi fits in and the other AVODs fit in, as Netflix had a rough month and stumbled a bit, here as the competition is starting to gather and build, um, starting to sort of show what it's going to be doing. I'm not too worried about Netflix, but they did have a kind of a rough month. The battle for consumer hearts and wallets got off to a premature start. It was led by HBO's flood of Emmy nominations and a Netflix faceplant on subscriber growth. Netflix's anemic global numbers, barely half what analysts expected, also saw the U.S. subscriber count dip for only the second time ever. Wall Street whacked Netflix's share price 10% in a day, though I have to say it it remains hefty uh, with a price-earnings ratio of 120, which means that it brings in 120 times more in its price than its actual earnings would seem to justify. Pretty aggressive uh, evaluation there by Wall Street. Several law firms, to add insult to injury, have hoped to pile on the big drop with shareholder lawsuits over the way it was handled. The hiccup happened just a month before Disney Plus showcases its first programs at D23, the Mouse House's annual fan confab. And we finally got an arrival date, April, as with Jeffrey Katzenberg's Quibi venture for the Comcast NBCU contender. AT&T's HBO Max also said it will arrive early next year. And then there were this week's Emmy proceedings. HBO reclaimed from Netflix the crown for most nominations of any network, led by its retiring heavyweight, Game of Thrones, with a record 32. None of the top six shows receiving nominations came from Netflix. Uh, The closest they came was Ava DuVernay's fine four-part piece, When They See Us, was seventh with 16 nominations, and rightly deserving all of them. It's tempting to see the Emmy numbers as another example of Netflix's relative decline amid growing competition. But the Big Red End still came in second overall, a testament to the depth of its programming, which will be crucial when all the newcomers finally do arrive. 
Netflix even received five more nominations this year, 117, compared to 2018 when it broke HBO's 16-year streak at the top. Notably, Netflix snagged more than twice as many nominations as number three in NBC. All the other likely future contenders, Amazon's Prime Video, CBS, FX Networks, Hulu, and Showtime were even further behind. As far as I'm concerned, this is still a two-horse race for quality signifiers. So was this just a bad quarter or a portent of terrible times to come? If folks are diving off now in Netflix's home market, what happens when those other guys show up? Will consumers leave for good? We won't know for a while yet, probably at least until this time next year and probably well past that. But Netflix almost certainly will bounce back from its latest travails, such as they may be. Going forward, Netflix expects to add 7 million subscribers this quarter, putting it close to 160 million in 192 countries. It's rolling out a cheaper mobile-only offering in India, its biggest overseas opportunity. And of course, none of the newcomers will actually be here. They won't actually come until at least quarter four of this year. Disney Plus has announced a November launch. Problematically for all those aggrieved investors who have filed suit or are planning to, the company did say in its previous earnings call that it expected, quote, temporary churn, unquote, after its latest and biggest ever price hike. It got exactly what it anticipated. We'll see how temporary it is as people start to get more options and Netflix has less of the name brand, older content like Friends in the office as they start to cycle off. Which all brings us to uh, ad-supported or AVOD services. At OTTX, I talked with Adam Lewinson, and it's clear that Tubi sees itself as less a Netflix competitor than a substantial supplement for bargain-hunting TV viewers in the new meaning of TV. I put it around quotes. He likes to say that it is basically all the basic cable channel networks rolled up into one where you go and find the library stuff that you like, Uh, They claim to be the biggest AVOD service. They're privately held, so we can't check those numbers, but he does uh, trot out some admirable stats. A content library of 15,000 titles and 44,000 hours, 20 million monthly active users, 94 million hours streamed per month, and a nine-figure, to use their term, their vague term, content budget. Regardless of size, AVOD services face different expectations from SVOD in some key ways. People are exchanging their time by watching ads. Uh, The ad load is perhaps two and a half minutes per hour, far less than traditional TV. For free programming, the biggest headaches, though, remain similar, and Lewinson will get into that. Churn's going to challenge all these services, ad-supported or otherwise, when audiences can shift in and out with a few clicks. It will matter most to those who are expecting to have somebody keep paying a subscription fee to watch their content. This is the reason that CBS All Access has suddenly become CBS All Star Trek. They uh, were finding out that people were checking in, uh, signing on, binge-watching the new Star Trek show, uh, Discover, and then cycling out and uh, canceling their subscriptions. So they've since ordered four more Star Trek shows to keep uh, that kind of programming available pretty much year-round. It feels a little ridiculous, but for Star Trek fans, it will make sense. Whether that makes CBS All Access a viable competitor in a much heavier, busier race will be another question altogether. It may need to be more than just Star Trek all the time. AVODs don't have much to worry about how much people have to spend on entertainment. Their big question is, how much time do people have to spend on entertainment? 
the AVODs provide largely the same experience we know from traditional TV, more or less free shows with ads wrapped around them. Unique content is less important, Lewinson said, than similar content. Nobody at Tubi or its AVOD competitors is likely to ever have Friends, which Netflix famously paid Warner Brothers $100 million to keep on its screens through 2019 for just a single year. For people searching for Friends, though, on Tubi, what they'll find instead is an array of 80s and 90s sitcoms similar to Friends, but not Friends. Most customers, Lewinson suggests, are looking less for Friends and more for the comfort food viewing of familiar shows from that era. He's probably right about that. I can't imagine that Friends is that compelling an experience for everybody. I think a whole bunch of younger fans on Netflix will find it. We'll go through those 200 and some odd episodes, and then that will be that, and it'll, be, it'll, it'll have its time, and that will be it. We'll be interested to see how it plays out. The company is continuing to add content, including some big-name stuff. In August, for instance, it will add big-name library films, such as Alexander, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which I strongly recommend, American History X, which I've not seen but has gotten a lot of positive reviews, Four Weddings and a Funeral, a rom-com of the highest water, and Thelma and Louise, the pivotal Ridley Scott film with Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis that was sort of a cultural touchstone for a lot of women in particular, and I certainly launched Brad Pitt's career as well, so strongly recommend it as well. But all of it sounds a lot like what you would see on TBS, say, on a Saturday afternoon. The ABOD providers have to get on as many devices as possible, then make sure consumers consistently find shows they like, so they'll keep coming back. Tubi, interestingly, has invested substantially in machine learning technologies to help it improve the suggestions it makes to its viewers. Such tools are pretty much table stakes in the SVOD space, but relatively new on the AVOD space. I think everybody will get there soon enough, but Tubi may have gotten there sooner because of its background originally as a data and advertising company. As for distribution, Tubi is on the web, mobile devices, the game consoles, the major streaming devices, Comcast's Xfinity X1 box, and Samsung and Amazon Fire connected TVs. It's most of the places you want to access TV from. There's a fight going on to see who's going to be on whose connected TVs going forward, given the increasing role that connected TVs play. We'll see how that works out in time. Yes, there will be a nasty battle for SVOD primacy, but not until the spring or later. That fight will be, as Sinclair Broadcast Group's CEO Chris Ripley said, a sea of blood, unquote. The AVOD services, such as Tubi, meanwhile, are here already. They're building audience relationships and a reasonable value proposition for many TV viewers. I do think they will have to contest with each other and competitors such as the Roku channel and Amazon's rechristened IMDb channel to continue to get views and growth, but at least they're already here, using a business model that people know and that Hollywood can work with. That will count for something in the coming streaming wars. Okay, so that's my commentary. I've got this interview with Adam from a couple weeks ago. I think it's a pretty good conversation. You can dive deep on the Tubi stuff. Hang on while we hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back with uh, my conversation with Adam Lewinson, the CCO for Tubi TV. And we're back. Say 
Thanks so much for listening. This is David Bloom, and this is my conversation at the OTTX conference in Los Angeles in July of 2019 with Adam Lewinson, the Chief Content Officer for Tubi TV. A lot of you guys know who Tubi is, but not necessarily everybody. Some real quick metrics. Give me a quick sketch of what Tubi is, does, who it carries, things like that. Where it can be found. Sure. Um, so hi, guys. And, and I've already seen a lot of uh, our favorite content partners here, some of our awesome device partners. So it's great to see everybody. Uh, so Tubi is the world's largest AVOD ad-supported video-on-demand service. And um, when you say largest, that's based on titles that you all have, or content library, or what, what makes you large? Yes. All of the above. All of the above. I'll give some stats. Want some numbers? Uh, so we recently announced that we have 20 million monthly active users. Uh, we announced in the month of uh, June that we had almost 100 million minutes streamed. So that's kind of a lot of minutes. And then in terms of library, uh, we've got well over 15,000 titles, about 44,000 hours of content. So in terms of volume, just to give you some perspective, it's more than double the content volume of Netflix. So it's, it's big. And uh, you know, from a monetization standpoint, you know, we're, we're a privately held company, so there's only so much I can share. But I can say that in the month of June, we had our largest revenue month ever. AVOD is for real. We're, we're here to talk about AVOD at scale. So I guess this is scale. It is indeed scale. So uh, that real quickly, I don't want to lose this because you are privately held. We've seen uh, Future Today get scooped up by Synodyne and Eric Rebecca's company. We've seen uh, Pluto uh, join the very interesting collection of digital assets that Viacom is putting together so it can actually talk to people under the age of 25 again. <laughs> they can do it now. It's all right. It's just legal after VidCon and uh, awesomeness and everything else. Fun mm. Pluto. Uh, who Great question that I can't really answer, but here's what I can say. I, I can't really speak to the the M&A side of things. You know, we're we're VC funded from several VCs, a few strategic investments from a few of the studios. But in the M&A landscape, maybe strategic investments, yep, right? Exactly. And then some of the big players with benchmark one. I'm trying to just a couple. There's some big ones and there's a lot of ones. I think. Yeah, yeah. Coda uh, Capital, Jump Capital. Uh, there's a few others. There's a few big players. What's interesting, though, is you guys um, have been around for a while, nine, eight years now, since 2011? Yeah, so Tubi started as AdRise, which some of you may remember. So that was basically an ad tech streaming platform that would be white-labeled. And then I guess it was five years ago that AdRise shifted into Tubi. So we've been basically Tubi for five years. For five years. And there's still, I think, an interesting tension, as there's always been all the years I've covered with media and technology, or entertainment and technology, there's always that conflict between Hollywood and Silicon Valley. You represent the Hollywood side of this. Uh, Farhad, your CEO, is very definitely based up in Silicon Valley, very definitely the tech side. How does that get resolved for Tubi in terms of you know, what you are or what you do? Yeah, you know, David, that's a really interesting question. So my background before Tubi, uh, I was just at a bunch of studios. I was at Sony twice, I was at Disney, I was at Fox for a long time. Um, I think for me, 
the connective tissue was, as some of you that will know, I was at Crackle um, in a similar role. And I do think it was too early for Ava at that time. Crackle kind of cracked. Well. You did, you did some stuff. You did some original content. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, we absolutely. I mean, we, we, we gave it our best shot. I think that's a, that's a great way to say it. But that's where I really learned about the convergence. And for anybody doing my job, you know, when I was at FX before I went to Crackle, oh, it's easy, you know. Choir stuff here, choir stuff there, it's really not different. And then I learned, oh, it is different, right? You really need to understand UI, UX, you need to understand how to talk to engineers. My boss is an engineer at the moment, right? So it's always a fun conversation. You see some guy who's like a producer, filmmaker guy, trying to talk to an engineer. Those are different species of human beings, but I'm not sure they're both human, actually. So uh, it's got to be a fun conversation. You try to, try to get down to what they can understand and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, but, but I, 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 I have to say, at the, at the senior level at Tubi, on both sides, I think we've really figured it out. I, I've learned enough to speak just enough engineering so that they don't laugh at me, and they understand the entertainment world just enough to get it, right? Sometimes the Silicon Valley mindset is, well, content is content. It really doesn't matter. It's just a widget. Right, you get a lot audience, of it. Why content and it produces Z money or Yeah, something. exactly, and I would tell you if our, uh, you know, if our CTO is sitting here instead of me, he could say the same things about the value of content and how you know, every individual piece of content has an audience. It's really just about matching that content to the right audience. So it's not just a commodity. And the content price, obviously. And, and the price, yeah, for sure. Which includes the marketing. What do you see as the, the fundamental challenges for Tubi and those who are similar to you out there in the market right now that you all have to solve? What are the kinds of issues that you guys need to figure out? The biggest challenge in streaming right now, and this is across ABOD, SBOD, TVOD, all the BODs, would be, uh, and, and I'd say the, the virtual MVPs as well, it's, it's really about customer, customer acquisition, retention, churn. Those are, those are really at the fundamental level. If you don't have an audience and you can't retain that audience, you don't have a business. You're not going to monetize. You're not going to have minutes streamed, right? So I'd say that's number one. And then as a subset to that, I'd say content discovery. So those are the two things that we're really focused on every day. And really, once you crack those problems, that's where you really can get to scale. So when you say when you crack those problems, I'm presuming that you've got 20 million viewers and 100 million hours and all that stuff, you've cracked some portion of the nut, if not the whole of it. So what are the things that you all are doing, generally speaking, that are helping you all get people in the door and keep them there? Trade secrets, let's see. What should I share? Um, the least valuable one, but at least some. The least valuable one. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to say this is the content guy. I think that the product experience is incredibly important. So that's not just the content. Again, right. each piece of content has an audience, but it's also what's wrapped around it. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. And it's... So what makes your product experience special? Well, so much of it is just having a seamless experience where the tech fades away, right? You don't want to have latency issues. You don't want to see the scrolling circle over and over and over again. 
You also want to be ubiquitous, so part of that is distribution, where you do want your app to be everywhere that people are streaming. And then the other side of that, I'll say, is machine learning. So if we, if we really want to nerd out here, we can talk a lot about machine learning. Let's nerd out, because I know these are a lot of nerds out here. They're very stylish nerds, but still. It's true. So machine learning does what for you guys, and how does that manifest on a day-to-day -day user experience? Yeah. So Tubi's is, uh, we have our own proprietary content personalization engine where you know the more viewing data we have on our viewers, the easier it is for us to personalize the experience. And we're the only AVOD platform who's got this big ML machine working in the background. Really? So, You're the only one? Yeah, in AVOD. Yeah. In AVOD. Obviously, Netflix has Netflix it. Netflix may know Amazon has it. Amazon may have passing. Yeah, they, they knew a lot, for sure. But no one's and, really doing an AVOD for you guys. How long have you been doing ML? Um, we announced it, I guess, about a year ago, and obviously there was a good bit of R&D that went on before right. there. Right. You know, and obviously with a new customer, we're starting at zero. So if you're a new viewer and we don't have any data on you, it's going to take some time for us to understand your viewing patterns. But once we identify, oh, David, you love to watch horror films, great. Then our algorithms start to understand, oh, here's David, here's some horror films. But we also know, you know, not even the most rabid horror fan. They're not just going to watch horror films. Actually, the most rabid ones, they only watch horror films. Well, they right? don't understand the people, but <laughs> God bless them, because they've just made Jason Bloom a very rich man. Yeah, that so. is true. But there's always date night, right? There's always co-viewing. Sometimes you get kids in the room. And so, you know, machine learning has to be smart enough to identify that there's still broad diversity of content. You roll all of these together, and that's really helping us hit the challenges of today. Pop on Tubi, and I've, I'm somebody you guys know, because I've been doing it for six months. And I pop on there, you've got lots and lots and lots of content. It's not linear channels like a program guide, but it's a bunch of stuff. The, the tiles that show up, essentially, mm -hmm. have been optimized pretty well for me, even if it's me and three other people in the household. I mean, how do, how do you all deal with the household that actually has the household and not the person? Yeah, that's a great point. And we don't have accounts the way that Netflix has accounts. So, you know, my kids have their own Netflix account. And so that obviously helps to tailor the experience for them. For us, if it's a mobile viewer, that's a lot easier. There's right. far less co-viewing on mobile unless they're casting to a TV. But for our living room viewer, yeah, it's it's about, well, we know the account owner, essentially, but ML for us is broad enough that you, you get that you need some diversity of experience. So you're never just gonna see horror films. You might need to scroll down just a tiny bit, but then there's some romantic comedies and some other things. And over time, we get and to romantic understand. Romantic comedies can be pretty horrific sometimes. <laughs> well, that's true. Like said. But so they'll be able to scroll and be able to find that stuff. There's a little more opportunity. It's not just going to be a, a homogenous thing. Did you all develop that in-house? Yeah. Purely in-house? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hired a bunch of scientists and yep. a lot of A lot of very clever engineers. A lot of very clever engineers. And, and they're not all based up in Fremont, or you're up in Fremont? Uh, NSF. NSF, yeah, yeah. okay. So the churn side of this is, I think, one of the fundamental existential challenges for on-demand video in general, because unlike in the days of cable, those long ago days of cable, you had a box, you had one provider, 
maybe uh, get rid of a tier of, mm -hmm. of programs or, or channels if you really wanted to save money, but that's kind of it. You, really didn't, you weren't swapping out channel by channel. Uh, maybe you didn't renew Cinemax, but they do it over HBO anyway, right? So now, how do you keep down churn? Are there deals? Are there bundles? I mean, I'm trying to think about it. To me, it seems like bundles. It seems like long-term, but you're a lot. So how do you keep them from switching around? I'll answer it this way. I think so much of it comes down to, over time, consumers, viewers, start to have an emotional connection to an app and to that experience. So let me not make this about video, let me make this about music. So on my phone, I've got pretty much every music streaming service app you can think of. I use Spotify 99% of the time. And these other music services have other, in general, have the same music. Just I've developed that affinity. And I think a lot of that goes back to what you mentioned at the top, David, which is why I love the word aggregator, because when you do get to scale and you do have a large library, and I may not have the exact title, like if you're looking for friends, famously, like I don't have friends, maybe it's somewhere else today. I don't have any friends either. So oh, well, that's, that's a different well, I like you. Okay, so well. Uh, but uh, if you're looking for friends, I certainly have plenty of sitcoms from the, from the 90s and 2000s and, and, and present. So similar content. It's once you get accustomed to that ecosystem, and that's where the personalization comes into play, and as has been talked about earlier, sometimes there's lean-in content, and sometimes there's lean-back. I think one of the great things about VOD is it's, it's really both depending on what you're looking for. You could come in, you're searching for a particular thing, you want to lean in on this movie, on this series, on this documentary, and then there's the lean back of, what do I want to watch? Oh, this looks interesting, click. And one of the interesting things I would say about AVOD, and, and I think one of our advantages, particularly for our indie partners, many of whom are in this room, you know, the, the barrier to entry is so low. I'm not paying for this transaction. Oh, I like the key art. Oh, I like this actor. Click, you'll try it. You, just, you didn't just spend $5.99. Right? You're not already paying for a subscription. Less friction, I think you used the term somebody talked about earlier. It's a great way to say it. That doesn't, I mean, so you think that they, they build an affection for Tubi and come there and know the interface and they get comfortable with it, so maybe being early to the game helped a little bit. But what else keeps you there? I mean, one of the things that we certainly see on the SPOD side is the race for original content. I know that uh, you and Farhad have been a little more cautious about the value of original content in the AVOD space. Talk about that. So, just a little bit of context. You know, when I was at FX, obviously, a lot of original, a lot of original content, and still. But a lot of boundaries, being really interesting, yeah. very different from usual TV. Yeah, exactly. Crackle, originals was obviously very heavy into the strategy. Um, I didn't develop it, but I was fortunate to inherit Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which was an outsized hit for, for Crackle. So for us, we have no plans. We have no intention of, of going down that road. And I, I consider myself to be a reformed development executive, if that makes sense. I don't think like a reformed development executive looks like. Well, it looks like me. Yeah, I'm, like I'm much calmer. I 
I'm much happier, I drink less. Well, well, we don't have a bad heart, really. I'm pretty much calmer at this point, yeah. particularly now in this environment. It's going to be insane for development executives, right? It's, it's tremendously competitive. You wind up overpaying for content. So for those who are familiar, uh, you know, when I was at FX, uh, my CEO then, obviously still there, John Langraff, famously said, there's too much television. So right now, I think the number is still about 500, maybe slightly under 500-ish, scripted. Yeah, just scripted. Yeah. Scripted. And I think we're going to blow past that, but we're on that page to blow past 500. Exactly. Plus, there's all the reality on top of that, which is obviously exponentially more. Original series are just whizzing by at such an epic pace. And if I didn't live in LA and drive, and see the billboards, and I see Netflix billboards twice on my way home, right? And I go, oh. They change them out every six hours, I think. I've noticed. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known about the Umbrella Academy or what have you, right? It wouldn't necessarily pierce my bubble. But we live in LA, right? And so we see these things, and if you live in the Midwest, chances are Netflix is not spending a lot of money on outdoor. And so with all of this content, it's really just whizzing by. You know, a point I'll, I'll come back to in a second. But with all of this content to watch, and with this huge library that we already have, and so much content deals that are already in the works, and you know, so much more that's just going to keep coming uh, into our pipeline. There's plenty to watch. So I don't feel like the problem for Tubi is our viewers can't find something to watch. Our viewers have plenty to watch. And it's always amazing to me every single day to see, okay, 15,000 titles. Everything's getting watched every month. Obviously, some a lot more than others. But, it, you know, it's... It, Originals is not solving a problem that we have. 15,000 titles sounds like a lot to me, um, but there's people out here, you said you've got a lot of content partners out here, and you have a secret, and we can't talk about it, platform partner out here in the audience. <laughs> you know who you are. I don't know. And, and one that you can talk about. How would somebody out here who has a content library who's not yet a partner to be, inexplicably has not been in a deal with Tubi, what would they bring to you that would be of interest to add to that 15,000 titles, and what would you bring to them? Yeah, well, I, I, mean, I feel like at the moment, we've got over 200 content partners, so there's certainly still a, a few deals that are in the works, and, and there's always somebody who pops up. We're always on the lookout for libraries of premium content, so if we're not talking, you know, feel, feel free to grab me. So what do we offer in return? Money, I guess that's a, a good way that's to say good. it. People that's not like bad. That. Yeah, it yeah. I mean, we announced that we have a, a I have a nine-figure content budget this year, and we're spending it. So we got money. Discoverability remains an issue with fifteen thousand titles. So machine learning helps. What else are you doing to help in the discovery process? Now it gets into the secret sauce a little, but so I'll just say some broad things, but makes sense. Social media is incredibly important. Important to find certain communities. Search is also incredibly important. You know, for our device partners present and future who might be in this room, they have lots of great levers to pull within their ecosystems so that, uh, you know, banners and all types of things so that uh, we can reach particular consumers. And it's really just understanding that content is not necessarily one size fits all. And, and we'll, we'll probably get into this in a second, but it's matching the right piece, right person, the right piece of content 
that is just so important to solving churn. Yeah, I mean, I think user expectations of the experience they have in Avon must shape all this. How do you all, I mean, what do you think the expectations are these days, and how do you all try to play into and shape those expectations when they come to you? What is it to think that people coming from MVPD, people coming from Netflix, dropping into, oh, what's this thing on, uh, you know, Roku? Oh, I'll check these guys out. What expectations are you having to deal with, and how does that shape what you do for them? As we talk to our viewers and we talk to potential viewers, we pretty much hear the same thing. Give me content for me with the user experience that I want. There's really just the basics of it. And everybody's an individual. So in the days that we grew up, right, there were three big broadcast networks and then four and then five and then cable. And so the, the idea of broadcasting, unless it's the Super Bowl, right, has become almost quaint. There's, there's certain events, primarily sporting, live news for sure, that have broader reach. But then it just gets down to these personalized experiences. And, and, I, and I think that's so much of what's changing out there. And that's what viewers are telling us they want us to solve. What kind of ad load do you have typically? And is the expectation that I'll have less of an ad load if I come to Tubi than I would have had on a cable system in a more traditional broadcast network? 85 to 90% of television historically has been ad supported. And then 10 to 15% has been pay HBO, Showtime, etc. One of the phenomenons with SVOD, right, led by Netflix, Amazon, etc is, no, 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 that model is quaint. The model's really reversed. 85 to 90% of consumption is ad-free, and then really, Americans, there's just a small subset that has a, a tolerance for ads. Every piece of data that I've seen says the opposite is true. You know, the history of television, I think, still holds. 85% of Americans have a tolerance for ads. Just don't overdo it. Perhaps Linear has been overdoing it with their ad load, which is why our ad load is roughly half the size of TV. And our viewers tell us all the time, yeah, okay, like considering that it's free, this is the right mix for us. perception value there. Yeah, absolutely. Like, we don't mind paying for it, we still want to pay and pay and pay and pay and then finally see something. Yeah, it, it, exactly right. And, and that's why from an ad sales perspective, you know, uh, scarcity is helpful. I mean, obviously we've got a lot of ad impressions uh, given the number of hours streamed, but still, it, it, as you have less ads per pod, those ads get more valuable. Retention of the ads is a lot higher when you've got two or three per pod versus seven or eight per pod. Are you still 30 second, 60 second ads? Are they different formats than that? Yeah. It's a lot of experiment. Quibi's a fine example, six second to 15 second. Yeah, ads. yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're not going down that road. It's, it's TV, so it's 30s and 15s primarily. Well, I see a lot of blood, not necessarily <laughs> about that, but possibly someone over there too. But what's your vision of what the AVI industry looks like over the next three to five years. What are the uh, technology drivers that affect the experience and the content that you're providing? Does 5G matter? Does um, ATSC 3.0 matter? Or some of those services? 
Uh, are there other things going on out there that change what you're doing or where you do it? What's all the I think to frame this, first let's talk about Espan. You know, as we were talking out in the hallway, the bloody battle is to come, right? Wave two of Espan, and it's going to be quite fascinating to see what happens. But I think, as I mentioned about sort of the history of TV, I, over the next three years, we're going to see parity between Espan and Avon. I think we're going to see in terms of... So, Perry, so you think that in terms of audience, like the 50-50 kind of split, you know, I'll have my channel, my pay channels, or whatever they are, and then I'll go to Tubi for a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, it, it, exactly right. I, I think, think about it this way, it, it's almost like premium and basic TV. People are always going to want to watch Stranger Things or whatever that big show is. So they'll go watch it, whether it's HBO or Netflix or Amazon with their Lord of the Rings series, etc. I think that you know AVOD is really complementary to SVOD. It's kind of like the basic networks all sort of rolled up into one. And this is where you find your library. This is where you find the content that specifically speaks to you. And, and I think the trend is going to be more and more in the direction of AVOD. I think it'll settle into, um, you know, three years from now. Right now, you can say we have the big three SPUD services. I think three years from now, we'll have the big three SPUD services. That big three may shuffle. We shall see in terms of who exactly is it. And I think you'll find, you know, a small number of ABOB aggregators uh, who've also reached that scale. Uh, just more broadly about the future of television three years, because I'm, I'm not so much a technologist, you know, 5G, I'm not exactly sure, or as Trump says, how about 6G? When are we gonna get to 6G? I don't know, but I can say this. So let's think about some of the biggest scripted moments in the history of television. The MASH finale, the Friends finale, Who Shot JR, uh, Sopranos finale, Game of Thrones finale. These big events, that are watched at scale are becoming increasingly rare. And this is just all about time shifting, right? Obviously, the way that viewers are consuming content has completely changed. Quick anecdote, probably many in this room will relate. I love Veep. My wife loves Veep. We used to watch it together. We're busy. She watched the series finale live. It took me about a month or so to get to it. And she was pissed at me for like a month. That's a whole different issue. Well, that's true. Well, I don't want to go there. But yeah, we couldn't talk about it, right? Oh, that, so, that was the real problem. So she had watched it, you had it, she couldn't spoil it for you. So she was being good in that way, but you were being bad by not watching it to be able to free her to say, what did you think? Exactly. So we could talk about it. Finally, I saw it. And she said, I don't want to talk about it. I'm watching Stranger Things. Leave me alone. And I haven't watched Stranger Things. You kind of saw that coming, didn't you? Pretty much. So the water cooler has shifted. Now the water cooler are these micro-targeted communities on social media. Networks and studios used to tell people, this is what you're going to watch, and this is when you're going to watch it. And now things have changed so that everybody's a curator. So I think really the, the keys to, I think, ABOT in general, but certainly the keys to, to Tubi is that's why we have this massive library powered by machine learning. We're here to just give our viewer the fastest path to watching whatever it is that they want to watch. 
And I think the future of television is all about micro-targeting. Technology is helping with that technology to make it easily accessible on your phone, on your smart TV, on your gaming console, etc., etc. And one last thought on this, the Game of Thrones finale, the viewership was about one-fifth the size of the MASH finale. And that has nothing to do with quality. Both are two of the biggest and best shows in the history of television. It just speaks to the rapid shift in viewership trends and how everything is getting into micro-targeting. And I, I think for all of us on the platform side, once you have a strategy that can really address micro-targeting, that really unlocks your future. And that's our show. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. Hope you found some interesting stuff with what Tubi's doing and where things are going with the Netflix faceplant. I'll just call it that. There's lots happening here. It'll be a lot busier in about six months, and it'll be crazy by this time next year. I think it'll be a lot of fun to watch. Maybe not so fun to be in the middle of it, but we'll have lots to talk about regardless. If you have any thoughts on this, please take advantage of the audio comment capabilities that anchor.fm provides for my podcast everywhere that it plays on all 10 platforms on which it can be found. Uh, maybe I'll be able to turn that into something for an upcoming episode. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, subscribe, share it to other folks, let people know about it. If you want to get hold of me, I am reachable in lots of ways. You can Follow me on Twitter, at David Bloom. Follow me on LinkedIn, at David L. Bloom. And uh, please uh, make sure that uh, other folks know about all that we're doing here. If you really like what I'm doing, Anchor.fm makes it pretty darn easy to become a supporter and chip in a few bucks to keep this well-oiled media machine rolling along down the information superhighway. I would certainly appreciate any support you might feel willing to give. It's uh, deeply, deeply appreciated. In the meantime, in this scorching hot summer of 2019, please stay cool. That is probably the best place to start as we look at the second half of the year and all that's going on. I hope that we can continue to share conversations here, and I hope that you stay well. This is David Bloom for Bloom in Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.